This week's reading is from Mark chapter 7. And from there he rose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be seen, could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. When he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged to lay his hand on him. Taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of the Lord. Let's begin in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This week we're chugging right along in Mark's Gospel. And... What's interesting is, is that we are coming to the end of, like, a part of Mark. Um, oh, there's my microphone thing. And at the, up to this point, Mark has made it a point to note that Jesus didn't want people to know that he was the Messiah. And people have written about this for, uh, I guess about 2,000 years now, why didn't Jesus want uh, people to know that he was the Messiah? Well, of course he wanted people to know he was the Messiah, just not yet. Um, So this is the tail end, the very end in these readings today, when Jesus would tell people, don't tell anyone I'm the Messiah. And they would do it anyways. And what's interesting is, like I mentioned before the service, is that it's like a double feature. It's a double album, so to speak, today. We have two little nuggets. They're called pericopes. uh, Two little nuggets with a beginning, middle, and end of Jesus doing something in our gospel reading today. We have first the Gentile woman, and she shows great and humble faith, even though she's a Gentile. And her daughter's demon is cast out. Then we get the unclean man, the Israelite, or I guess we would just call them a, or him a Hebrew at this time. Uh, he's, he's deaf, and because of his deafness, he is mute, and he's touched by Jesus, and he's healed. Truly, the Messianic age has begun. The end times have been brought to now, but Jesus can't yet 
trigger the ire of those in authority. He can't get that target on his back yet because he still has so much more work to do. Because as soon as everyone knows that he's the Messiah, they're going to try and kill him. And so Jesus has been talking for the last two weeks uh, through me to you guys all about cleanliness, uncleanness, uh, washing your hands, not washing your hands, uh, sinful heart because of things that go into you versus the things that come out of your heart making that heart dirty. We see now in these, this double feature. I don't know, last time you saw a double feature. Uh, last time I did was, I think it was Ratatouille and Transformers. It's a different time. But uh, <clears throat> we now get clear examples from Jesus of what it means to be unclean and what it means to be clean. First, that unclean Gentile who lives outside of the authority of Jesus, outside of the rule and reign of Yahweh, so much so living outside of this rule that a demon actually rules over this woman's daughter. Even she, through faith, can come to live under Jesus' rule in Jesus' kingdom. And just as a little side note, I think this is just an awesome example of how you parents, you get to decide, basically until your kids turn 18, that in this house, Jesus rules the kingdom. And then we have the unclean, the, the deaf, mute Israelite, who's supposed to be the chosen one. He's anointed with Jesus' spit, which is profoundly disgusting to us. And then Jesus' holy word heals him, cleans him. The first account, it shows how desperately Gentiles wanted to be part of the table, to be part of the community of faith, to even have scraps of the Messiah. The woman's faith was so trusting that she was willing to be it's interesting, guys. So the Greek word here, it's basically doggies. I want to be a doggy napping at the scraps coming from the table. And the second account shows the at-need nature of Israel. It's desperate. It's so dirty, unclean. It's disabled. It isn't normal in doing fine. Israel, God's chosen people, it was sick. It was unclean. It was deaf to God's promises and his word. It was mute to call out to God for help, to teach people to trust God's promises. But we find that Jesus doesn't settle for less. He doesn't give scraps. He gives the complete kingdom of God to the woman and her daughter at first. They no longer live under the domain and rule of the kingdom of demons, the prince of this world. They were brought to unfailing faith in Jesus Christ. The lordship was transferred. And then Jesus gives complete healing to this man. This man, Israel. This man of Israel. Possibly against his will. As Jesus often did. 
I've been kidding for like two weeks now um, with Wendy, the secretary. Um, if you guys remember, you look in the gospel reading. It's almost confusing. It goes... Um, Taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. So it makes you wonder, did Jesus put his fingers into his ears and touch his tongue to indicate to this guy what he was going to do? Or did he... put his fingers into this guy's ears and touch this guy's tongue after spitting on him. I don't know. It's pretty crazy to me. And we went back and forth. We each had our own opinion. And we never decided in Greek class. It just says he and his. And they're both dudes. So who knows? But I think it sounds more like Jesus. That he humbled himself, took him aside, no one was watching, and he touched this unclean guy, this outcast, and he said, you haven't been able to hear, I'm going to heal you, I'm going to make you hear, and I'm going to let you talk, I'm going to let you sing. Could you imagine if you had never heard music before, if you had never heard your friend's voice And then a guy comes and he lets you hear and you hear music for the first time and you get to sing for the first time. I mean, you would look up back on this and you would say, you know what? I love Jesus. And man, just the opportunities that this opened up for this man would have been just incredible. He would return to worship in the temple. He could chant the Psalms with his family. He could sing worship songs and praise. He could hear God's word and respond to it. All because of Jesus. But regardless, I think what's important is, is that we realize that what heals this man is God's word, Jesus' word. I'm going to try my best to say this word again. It starts with two F's. And I swear I wasn't trying to not be able to say it just now. It's Psalm 24, verse 7. It's open up. Lift high ye mighty gates. Right? We all know this one. This is what Jesus was saying. He was using God's word, his word, through the mouth of David. The Lord's anointed to heal this man. He opened up this man's tongue. He opened up his heart to receive God's kingdom, the complete kingdom, not divided. And in doing these two miracles, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament reading today. Uh, He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak, which is also promised in the psalm. Uh, It's what Yahweh declares to do uh, for his people in that psalm today. And um, just as a side note, uh, Jesus is the Son of Man, the Son of Man, meaning the Son of Man promised in Daniel 7, which we'll get to in like two months, 
with the end of the church here. Meaning he is the Messiah. And the psalm urges us today to not put our trust in princes who die and turn to dust. And not to put our trust in sons of men which die and turn to dust. But we are urged to put our trust in the son of man who opens the ears of the deaf and frees the tongues of mutes. Jesus breaks away from the Old Testament. And I think this is what's crazy. Jesus didn't just fulfill the Old Testament, the law. He didn't just keep it perfectly for us. He actually brought it to a close and began something new. And he could do that because he is God. So he is redeeming his fallen creation, redeeming the law, which kills, you know, makes people feel guilty and all of these things. Jesus redeems that for his own purposes. I think you remember like, you know, his, his, uh, uh, his disciples weren't washing their hands. They were pl- plucking grain. They were eating it. Jesus was healing on the Sabbath. He came was and is the Messiah, he rewrites the rules. He recreates the world. He takes Gentiles who weren't included, and he makes them included. He casts out demons. He takes who is unclean and cast aside. He makes them clean. He makes them included. And what's so cool is the crowds at the end of the gospel reading... They echo the finishing of the creation story in Genesis. The crowd says, he has done all things well. Echoing, God created all things and he saw that they were good. Jesus has begun new creation in in history, in our lifetimes, and has created us new in our faith. Jesus, the creator, who is there from before the foundation of the world, has begun a new creation through redemption, redeeming fallen creation. Now, as we transition to this part of the sermon where um, things are going to get tempestuous, I just, it's... What, I, what it brought to mind when I was looking at this reading was how easily we like to think that we are the children at the table. I mean, because we are, right? We're the children at the table. We are Christians. We are baptized into the faith. And we are Jesus's little brothers and sisters. He has saved us. But at the same time, it's damaging to think that we are just saints and not also sinners. But it's also damaging to our Christian understanding and faith to think that we are never without fault. To think that, oh, sure, I'm a sinner. Like, oh, yeah, I'm the chief of all sinners. Like, you know, for example, a professor of mine, um, he would go to the headquarters of the LCMS and do whatever during the day, like once a week, maybe 10 years ago. And a radio personality... He would come out of the recording studio, and they'd, be, they'd see each other in the hall. They never missed each other. And he would say, oh, like, uh, 
you know, how do you, good morning, sir. How are you? And this guy would say, I'm bad, which is ridiculous because dude, get over yourself. You're not just bad. You're actually doing fine for yourself and you are redeemed. You are saved in Jesus Christ. But also at the same time, dude, stop making your badness, your original sin, your chief identity, but also stop making that that original sin that still dwells in your heart and tries to get you to do the wrong thing all the time. Stop making that sound goofy. James makes it clear today in his epistle. It's, and it's almost, it's like really cool. It's like James is giving a sermon on the gospel reading, complete with like illustrations. Like he has this this completely fabricated story about like, okay, so like if someone comes into your church and um, they, they obviously are rich and you're like, oh, please sit in the front pew. Um, and you're like, okay, yeah, like I'm going to be nice to you and not, you know, make you feel bad because you're going to donate a lot of money to the church. He says that is hubbub. That is, uh, I don't know, what's like a... Maybe like a Polish word to say like terrible. I don't know. He says, this is not the way of the Lord. This isn't loving your neighbor as yourself to dismiss those that are poor and have them sit somewhere else and to treat them differently. And then if they were rich, you're all saved in Christ Jesus. He says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, becomes guilty of all of it. And I think he actually uses, uh, he illustrates it by saying like, oh yeah, like if you focus on not committing adultery, but you lie about someone or you gossip, you bear false witness, well then you broke the whole thing. You're just as guilty of the law as if you did commit murder. If you Say some careless words about someone. And that, my sheep, is why the law cannot save you. And I think James makes it clear. It cannot save you because it's not what it was designed by God to do. And it's not what Jesus recreated it to do, the law. The law of God, or as we confess for the first time again in Divine Service 1... Um, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. God's righteous will for his creation. It was designed by him to stop you from continuing to sin. It was designed to hold up a mirror to your life and to realize, oh shoot, I'm not doing what I ought to. And it was designed to guide you practically throughout your life. And there's, there's nothing bad about this. The law isn't bad. In fact, it's very good. But it, it's just so important to divide and not confuse the two and to, to forget that the gospel is what saves you, not what you do. Think back to that Old Testament reading. Those, uh, the words of salvation. Say to those with an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. He will come and save you. Words of salvation. 
If you're not sorry for your sins, if you deny what we confessed here today, uh, you know, uh, whoever confesses that they are without sin, uh, <clears throat> whoops, sorry, transitioning to divine service one. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say that we're without sin, we deceive ourselves. If your conscience is not made heavy by examining your heart during or before worship, those words, those words of salvation are not for you because that is the gospel. The gospel is there to relieve the guilt of your heart when you confess your sins. When Jesus died and rose again, he took your place in being guilty of those sins that you've committed and continue to commit. But I think this is the crux, the important point of what I'm trying to say, is that the next time you think that you are without sin, that it doesn't matter if you gossip or slander about another church member, or that you're harsh with your family, don't think that, like, oh, whatever, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to confess my sins to God or to pastor or to my friend and try and reconcile or my family member try and reconcile. Who cares? I'm bad. Jesus will just forgive me. Whatever. Remember that what you're doing isn't just wiped away with an eraser or disappeared with a magic spell. Whether you think what I say is a magic spell or just remembering words is a magic spell. No. Remember that you have added to Christ's pain and suffering on the cross in 30 AD. You are responsible both individually and corporately for the nails driven into Jesus's wrists and feet, the spear in his side. Your careless words, your refusal to forgive, push the crown of thorns into Jesus's skull, his brain. Your actions hurt and killed Jesus Christ. But thanks be to him. He took all of that upon himself and he died so that your broken relationships, your hatred could be atoned for. He died in your place so that you could have new life in him. In your baptism, you were joined into that death with your sins and you're invited to remember it every time you come into the church and you put your fingers into the water and you cross yourself in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I have been baptized. You can remember it in the shower as the water is pouring over you. This is when Jesus spoke his words, Ephrathah, into your heart. He opened it up. He lifted up the gates and the kingdom of God, the full kingdom, entered your heart and gave you new life. He opened your ears like the deaf man to hear his forgiveness. And he opened your tongue to forgive others. He allowed you to hear Christ's parables and to have ears to hear, to hear what they really mean. And he opened your tongue to respond to him in worship and praise. This is the gift of the gospel. 
It's something that you get to do. You get to forgive. You get to love. In the same way that Jesus did. Not just the way that people used to do. Or that you hear about in stories. You get to love sacrificially. As Jesus loved you sacrificially. You have new life. You follow his will. And James remarks that faith and works are joined at the hip when it comes to you being a new creation. Yep, you were freed from the condemnation of that law. But now you're a new creation. You're like Adam and Eve all over again. Like Adam and Eve, you no longer have the liberty to do whatever you want. You can only choose to do God's will. But, oh, pastor, I choose to go against God's will all the time, and I love it. It feels great. Yes, you do. Your old Adam, your old Eve remains in your heart, begging you to go against God's will. But it isn't really your will. You're just either going God's way or the prince of this world's way. And that's what's funny. You have this incredible blessing. You are Christians. You are baptized. You're a new creation. But often we don't want to choose one of the many goods. We don't want to follow Jesus' way. And I don't think it's because you're unhappy that Jesus died died for your sins and rose again. I don't think that's it. I just think that it's hard to keep having that old Adam and that new, that old Eve living in your hearts because their voice is very tantalizing. It's like a donkey that doesn't want to keep going on the path. You're pulling and you're pulling and it won't go. Or a horse. You're in the middle of the American frontier and it won't go over the river no matter what you do. What do you have to do? Got to kill it. And keep going. But for you Christians who do want to follow Jesus' way, who do want to daily kill their old Adam and Eve with their baptism, know and take heart that there is a way. Do you find yourself going against God's will? Quit it. Stop. Stop hurting others. Stop driving those nails in. Confess your sins. Change your behavior. Embrace Jesus. Embrace his words of forgiveness and trust him. Never forget that it's a life of daily repentance. Take the time to reflect on what you may have done wrong, what have you, you may have uh, neglected to do or think about or help another person during the words of confession or that silence when it's a little bit too long and you're uncomfortable when pastor is quiet up there. Have I gossiped? Have I been harsh? Have I lied? Have I been a good boss, good husband or wife, son or daughter? If you haven't had a troubled conscience since childhood, something's wrong. And if there's something specific that's weighing on your heart, then know that if you contact me or you just come on in, I will talk to you. I will hear you. I will give you individual absolution. Remember that I can't tell anyone the sins that you confess to me. They go into my ear and they die for good. 
In the same way that the creator Jesus has took on those sins for you, died with them, redeemed you, he rises and he sends. He sends forgiveness of sins to you through the words of the service, the word of the scriptures, his very self in communion, his death, his resurrection, in your baptism. Truly confess, truly repent, truly be forgiven, and through this truly live. In Jesus' name, amen.